Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. It turns out that when human beings move with other human beings in synchrony, um, it shifts what's happening in our brains in a way that, that makes us feel literally connected to the people we're moving with. And part of it is neurochemistry, some, some social bonding hormones like endorphins, possibly right. oxytocin. But people have this direct experience that, you know, if you're in a yoga class or you're, you're marching, you know, in a protest or you are dancing with other people or whatever it is, that you, you literally feel connected and you sense yourself as part of something bigger than yourself. And as a result, people report liking the people they move with more, trusting them more, feeling more like they belong in a space where they move with other people. So less, less lonely or less stigma. Um, they also feel more hopeful in general about themselves and their problems and the world. So they, they report more optimism, more belief that like difficult problems can be solved. There's something really powerful about the psychological effect of moving with other people. And Collective Joy describes the kind of like the euphoria of it, but you don't have to get this enormous ecstatic, like the, the extreme version of like, you know, everyone's at a rave and they're jumping up and down <laughs> right. and maybe other substances involved. And you're like, this is collective joy. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that extreme. It could just be a sense of, of general well-being that comes from doing sun salutations in a room with other people. Uh -huh. um, and that translates into to real, a real sense of social connection and bonding that, by the way, is not fake or phony. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Kelly, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. I have wanted to talk to you for a very long time. You've been uh, re- you know, requested by our listeners for a long time, as well as my cousin who was just texting me and said, oh my God, I really want to meet her. I have so many questions for her. Uh, <laughs> And you know, I came across your work by uh, way of multiple books of yours. In fact, the very first book my uh, editor at Penguin sent me when I signed my book deal was your previous book, The Upside of Stress. Um, and I got your new book, uh, The Joy of Movement, a subject which is very near and dear to my heart. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you a question that I know part of the answer to from having read the book, but I don't know the second part. And that is, what birth order were you and what impact did your birth order end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Oh, that's, that is interesting. So I am an identical twin sister, So, and it's just the two of us. And I was born um, six minutes early. So while I don't know if that really matters, um, it does seem to be the case that we adopted the idea that I was the older one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't Do you have any theories about about older identical twins yeah, and whether that six minute matters. Funny enough, we do because we had another guest here who had the exact same situation and she said, but the other sister is very clearly the older sister and she makes it well known that she's the older sister. 
Yeah, I, I feel like our family actually had a whole sort of story growing up about how my sister was born really sick mm. and, you know, had to be incubated and was struggling for her life. Um, and, you know, people didn't know if she was going to survive. And we had that whole story that that was my sister and I was the one that was born healthy and strong. And we found out recently that actually that was wrong. And I was the one who was born sick and weak um, and struggled to survive. And my sister was the one who was super healthy and strong. So that, talk about like, uh, that was, a. I mean, like very recently, we just discovered that that was a mistake. And that was a whole story we'd grown up with our whole lives too. So not just that I was the older one, but that I was also the strong, healthy one. Um, uh-huh. And as it turns out, I was, I'm the survivor. So uh, you, I always wonder, uh, you know, I have a sibling who uh, I'm five years apart from. What is the family dynamic like when you're twins? Like, what is it like for your parents? Was it just completely overwhelming in terms of how they, you know, guided you? And what was the underlying message that you both got about making your way in the world? Um, well, so part of it is having to do with being a twin. And part of it is just the way that the, one of the things that my parents gave us that I take away from my childhood, that was like the best thing they could have done. Um, so as a twin strategy, they did allow us to distinguish ourselves from one another very early on. Initially, when I was in third grade, I cut my hair short because I wanted to look like one of the kids from uh, a TV show. Um, what was the name of that show where they sang and danced? Kids Incorporated. I wanted to look like one of the rock stars on Kids Incorporated. And from there on out, they let us dress differently and they let us pursue different activities. So even though we had extremely similar skills and talents and interests, I think they encouraged us to sort of carve out our own spaces. So, you know, Jane went into debate and I went into drama. Uh, Jane was the writer and I pursued um, the visual arts. And now sort of as we have gone into midlife, we've actually converged so much. It's almost like we tried to distinguish ourselves, but we're very much a similar person. Um, the, The thing that they did that was sort of along those lines that was super helpful, I think, as a parenting strategy, is they also really encouraged us to pursue anything we were interested in um, and to do it like full out. Mm. So whatever we were intrigued by, they would look for ways to connect us with classes or books on that topic or, you know, give us time to engage in that creative pursuit. Um, and that was, that was really important, I think, in teaching both of us to trust our own intuitions about who we wanted to be in the world. So, you know, I grew up in an Indian family and anytime we showed an interest in something, if my parents didn't see a potential career path for it, they would basically say, well, that's a nice hobby, but you're not going to make a career out of it. Uh, And I wonder, you seem to have been raised with a really different narrative. I guess, you know, for parents who are listening to this, what would you tell them about that? Well, you know, it's interesting because I also experienced that too. So when I was applying to colleges, um, I started getting scholarships to pursue the visual arts. And, um, actually my parents were pretty clear. No, (laughs) like (laughs) you're going to go to a school where there's some other path, but they, but, um, so I feel like they had that concern. Um, they pushed us extremely hard in our academics. I think we were allowed to, I was allowed to pursue things like dance and painting and drawing, um, because we were at the top of our class and getting straight A's and killing it in sort of every way possible academically. Mm -hmm. So I think they weren't concerned that we wouldn't be able to get into college and we would go, you know, I think they would have been very concerned if we'd pursued uh, non-traditional career paths earlier. And they actually were quite concerned when, you know, 
you know, having a PhD and not wanting to become a tenured professor <laughs> that I have carved out, you know, my sister and I both have carved out, out non-traditional paths for people with um, PhDs from the institutions that we've gone to. Yeah. And uh, they were concerned about that too. I think finally now everyone's relaxed. We're like, we nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry anymore. We both have roofs over our head. So. Uh-huh. I think for my parents, it's going to be when I get married, but that's just because they're Indian. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think that these sort of non-traditional career paths are becoming more and more common in the world that we're living in today. I mean, I kind of did uh, something very similar, like, you know, went to undergrad at Berkeley, you know, business school at Pepperdine, and then somehow ended up doing this for a living. And I'm like, why did I bother with all that school? Um it, you know, so two questions come from that. As somebody who pursued a PhD as well as was pushed so hard academically, what is your view on the role of education today? Like, what do you think is great about it? What do you think is wrong with it? What do you think needs to be updated? You know, people often ask me about the value of going to any graduate school. And I feel like the greatest um, thing that it gave me was a way to, a perspective on the world, a way to interpret information and synthesize perspectives that that, you know, really it requires the vigorous intellectual training of a scientific PhD program. Mm-hmm. And I view the world differently as a result of going through that. Um, and I, I believe that every, every form of education will teach you to view the world in a very specific way. So once you get through law school or med school um, or business school, you, are, you actually have a different mind. And it can be, you know, very dramatic, although it's a slow process as you go through it, you might not even realize it's happening. So I think that's the most important value. And I'm, when um, you know, Stanford students will ask me about different graduate paths, I always say, you know, don't think necessarily about the job that is most commonly associated with that degree. Ask yourself if that's the mind that you want to apply to the most important problems in the world, if that is the mind that you want to have as a way of understanding the way the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, and And that, I think, is the the reason to pursue a graduate degree rather than think I am going to be a lawyer or I, well, I hope you're going to be a doctor if you go to med school. That one's pretty specific. <laughs> and it's very expensive. Yeah. But certainly with something with, you know, with other graduate degrees that are more about um, research and producing information or understanding how to, how to produce arguments mm-hmm. um, that that's the main benefit. And yeah. so so we had Tina Seelig here who uh, was telling me that when students come to her, they're in one of two categories. They have this like clear idea of what their passion is. You know, it's like the person who says, I'm going to med school, even though they've never taken a science class or set foot in a hospital. And then the opposite of that, which is, I don't have a clue what I want to do with my life. Uh, and I wonder what kinds of existential crises do you see with students that you teach, uh, particularly at a place like Stanford and as somebody who is, uh, in such an elite institution, what is your view on this whole college admission scandal? Because looking back at, at even getting into Berkeley, my sister and I joke now that, you know, we probably would never get in with the grades that we have now because of the, the environment. Yeah. I'm probably not the best person to ask about that because I no longer teach undergraduates. Okay. Uh, well, I, I do teach undergraduates, but I teach them through the recreational department. So the undergraduates that I am working with, they're dancing with me. Yeah. Um, the academic classes I teach are to PhD students. Okay. And the, the existential crises that I see them face are really um, about the fact that there is no job market uh-huh. for, for PhDs, even coming out of Stanford. And so, you know, basically academia in general is trying to figure out a way to justify producing PhDs when there are no jobs for PhDs in, in the way that they have been trained to believe there would be. 
Like it's, mm. you know, there aren't all these professorships opening up for, yeah. for the thousands of graduates to, um, to claim. And so people are, are thinking more creatively about what it means to have a PhD and what you can do with that skill set and that experience. And I'm all for that because that's what I did. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things I'm grateful for is that, you know, part of what I'm teaching PhD students uh, is how to understand the value of who they are as a researcher, how to communicate their research to the public, not only to other academics, and, uh, and hopefully help them think about themselves as, um, you know, producer of knowledge and a, a creative intellectual who has a lot to offer the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's why I appreciate conversations like the ones I get to have with people like you and people with Adam Grant, because of the fact that when I read your books, I can see the depth and amount of research that's gone into, uh, you know, what you're actually claiming. Whereas so often you read books that fall into this genre and they're anecdotal, but there's no real research to back them up. Yeah. And and anecdotes are, I mean, you know, there's a joke in science that anecdotes aren't data, but actually they are data, they're data points. Mm -hmm. And, um, as a sort of a competing argument, I also am always telling my students to listen to their direct experience. Yeah. So I think that there's, there's value in both. Um, and, uh, and hopefully we don't need to neglect one over in favor of the other. Well, walk me through what led you from a PhD to this sort of unconventional career path and how it eventually led to this book of all the ones that you could write next. Um, I knew from the beginning when I entered a PhD program that I wanted to be an author and I wanted to write popular psychology books um, and that I wanted to be someone who faced the public. So it's not really an accident. <laughs> and uh, I, I basically, that's why I went to graduate school. And I guess you could think sort of, you know, how I ended up with this particular book, that's not an accident either um, in that, you know, fitness has been my personal passion um, since I was seven years old. And I first fell in love with doing aerobics and calisthenics at home to VHS tapes. Um, and I started teaching uh, yoga and dance when I was a graduate student. And I had been teaching um, for 20 years. So this is the book that allows me to, to join what I love doing as someone who communicates science mm-hmm. and, and how that can help us understand our experiences and support our health and happiness. Um, while also like in the domain of when I get up in the morning, what is it that I look most forward to doing? What is it that, you know, over the course, so yesterday I taught two dance classes, one to a group of women who are mostly over the age of 60, many over the age of 70 and 80. That's what I did in the morning. Did a whole bunch of other stuff related to my sort of public facing self as a psychologist. And then in the evening, I taught a dance class to mostly Stanford undergraduate and graduate students. Those are the two highlights of my day, the morning dance class with my, my older ladies and then my evening dance class with my Stanford students. I believe that those are, and in fact, it was Mental Health Awareness Week at Stanford. And so the classes were free for people to bring their friends to. And it was great. People brought friends and the class was packed. And I love that um, Stanford recognizes that movement is part of how we take care of our mental health. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think the thing that I really appreciated in terms of the way that you presented this is you focus specifically on movement and you use the word movement instead of exercise, because I think there's such a, a sort of visceral reaction that some of us have to exercise. Oh, that sounds just like a, a necessary evil. I, I mean, I'm the kind of person who didn't fall in love with physical activity until I found an activity that I loved, which was both surfing and snowboarding. And now I'm there as much as possible to the point where I will cancel interviews with people. <laughs> That's good. 
Um, and I literally will tell them, I'm sorry, the surf just picked up. Um, we're going to have to do this another time. And most of them are fairly understanding because they get it. Um, but one of the things that you said is that movement is intertwined with some of the most basic human joys, including self-expression, social connection, and mastery. When we're active, we access innate pleasures from the satisfaction of synchronizing to the beat of music, to the sensory thrill of moving with speed, grace, or power. Um, and that was like at the very beginning of the book. Where does that come from? Like where, you know, how did you go about structuring the various concepts in this book um, and each of these ideas? Like, how did you decide what to tackle? Because it's such a broad category. Yes. So first of all, I actually love the word exercise and movement. I am not scared of the word exercise. Yeah. Uh, I think that one of the reasons why I love it is because the definition of exercise is when you choose to move for the pure purpose of moving. So movement could include walking to work, right? Movement could include you know, moving heavy boxes because you have to clear out your garage. That's all movement. You're breathing, your heart is pounding, your muscles are engaged, you're engaging with life through your body. That's movement. Exercises, I'm moving my body because I believe there is value in the, the experience of moving mm -hmm. um, as opposed to I need to do this because I have to get somewhere or I need to do this sort of for the, the function of the, the activity. Um, so I am encouraging people to totally redefine exercise. It's not a punishment for something you ate. It's not something you have to endure, even though it's, you know, a miserable experience. Um, I do believe that exercise is actually one of the best ways to experience human joys in our modern society. Mm -hmm. And the way that I, that I came to structure the book. So initially I thought, well, maybe it would be chapter by chapter by activity. Like, you know, maybe there's a, chapter on yoga and flow states. And maybe there's a chapter on dance and celebratory movement and a chapter on running. And I don't, I, I wasn't really sure how it would um, turn out, but as I was doing the research, because the central question of the book is why is it that people who are physically active are happier, report less loneliness, have more meaning in their lives, and that every kind of evidence you could look for exists. So it's not the case that if you have a meaningful life, you're more willing to exercise. It's the case that if you take people who are sedentary and you give them an intervention to become more active, they report more meaning in their lives. If you take people who are active and you require them to become sedentary, they report less meaning in their lives. I mean, it's, it's like every level of longitudinal, epidemiological, um, and experimental data you could want. So we don't even need to argue about you know, correlation versus causation. So okay. why is it that people who are active, they have more positive emotions, more meaning, they're happier, they're better relationships. So that was the central investigation, why? Mm -hmm. And as I was digging into the anthropology and the neuroscience and talking to people, um, what I was hearing back is that through movement and through exercise, like training for a race or going to the gym or running outdoors or dancing, that people were experiencing not only the kind of neurobiological reward that you get from moving your body, which is its own thing. There is an exercise high and yeah. it's not exclusive to running, it, but it's not just this kind of feel good or feel better effect. People were talking about how they experience themselves differently mm -hmm. and experience other people in the world differently because of the activity itself. Yeah. So that, you know, it changes the way that they view what they're capable of. So for example, if you experience the joys of doing something hard and putting in the effort and getting better, that, that core human need of mastery. I mean, literally, if you look at psychological theories about the things that humans need to have a good life, mastery is one of them. You need to do things that are challenging that you get better at. Another core human need is social connection and relatedness. 
And so many people I talked to were experiencing their most positive um, social connections through movement, through uh-huh. exercise. Yeah. And, and what I realized is that it's not just this exercise high that makes us feel better in the short term, that is the joy of movement, but it's that for whatever reason in our society now, and the way that the sort of the human mind and body are, are hardwired together, we experience human capacities for joy really well through movement. And you, you named a few of them, some yeah. stuff like music, stuff like biophilia and our joy of being in nature, uh-huh. but they're enhanced Like you can love listening to music and it'll set off, you know, dopamine bursts and endorphins in your brain. If you listen to music, you love, but yeah. if you move to music, you love, it's a completely different amplified experience. Yeah. Being in nature is wonderful. People feel more hope. They have um, more perspective on their lives. They feel transcendence. But if they're active in nature, again, it's amplified. And there was something about movement that seems to help us access what I would, what I would consider sort of our innate capacities for joy. That's part of our human nature. Yeah. So many questions come from this, uh, just from, from your explanation. So uh, luckily I pulled up the table of contents in front of me. So I remember there are two things that stood out to me. One of the things that you said is that I'm utterly useless at team sports and was one of the slowest runners in my class. And I can relate to that because I was the most improved player on my seventh grade basketball team, which just means you're the shittiest player on the team. (laughs) Um, and so I thought for the longest time, I have zero athletic ability. I couldn't stand any of the things that my friends did in college to play sports. Then I caught one good wave on a beach in Brazil and I was 31 years old. And you have an entire chapter about getting hooked. Why does that happen? What in the world is it? Like, I can tell you that I don't surf because of the exercise. The exercise is a convenient fringe benefit to both surfing yeah. and snowboarding. So why is that? What's going on in the brain when something like that? Well, so, so getting hooked has a few core ideas to it. One is about falling in love with a specific movement, which is what I think you're, you're really focusing on. And that's the idea that you know, based on your culture, your body, your temperament, your life experience, what's going on, what your values are, um, that there are different movements that will just, you will connect with, and it can often be an aha moment. You know, I talked with people who, you know, one woman who felt like she had the wrong body her entire life, like too big. It's not, it's just not athletic. And then she got in a boat um, for team rowing. And she suddenly experienced her body in a completely different way. And she literally had the thought, this is what my body was born to do. And so sometimes it's, and then of course, she also loved the experience of working with other women mm-hmm. to, to do something sort of in synchrony, in unison, that teamwork, that collaboration. So sort of her physical intelligence was revealed through the movement. And also there was like a, a metaphorical meaning to the activity that was really interesting and important to her. And she also loved being on the water and being in nature. So I feel like for, for most people, even those who, who think they don't like exercise, I, you know, I hear from so many people who are just like, I hate everything, um, that often they will fall in love when they find the right activity, the right environment, and it comes at the right time in their life. You know, I happen to fall in love with a few different activities over the course of my life, but the one I fell in love with first was aerobics and really just aerobic dancing and calisthenics. Because it was the first time, even though I'd been to ballet class, I don't know if you know much about the the early dance classes for children in like the 70s and 80s, but you know, it's not good music. It's like nursery (laughs) rhymes and you're like, control your foot, control your arm. I don't know. It wasn't dancing. I don't know what it was. And I wasn't good at it. Uh, You know, don't put me in the front of the recital. But then aerobics, it was pop music and it was, you know, with a beat and the movements were like 
they actually made sense and they felt good and they were expressive. And as a young girl, I was like, I can do this. And I feel something and I feel the music moving through me. And that was what I have continued to stay in love with that particular joy of um, cognitive scientists call it the expressive uh, moment where you hear something in music and then your body enacts it in a way that it, it almost feels like you are the music, whether it's the gesture of your arm or you're clapping to the beat. Yeah. And that's what I fell in love with. And I have sort of a unique gift for that expressive moment. So people will find their own thing. And, uh, and often it comes not in early childhood where so much of what we are, so much of what we experience through movement is you have to be the best. It's competitive, <laughs> right. there's shaming involved. Or people talk about it as you have to do this so that you don't gain weight or so that you lose weight. There's a lot of stuff that can confuse the intrinsic joys of movement. And so often people discover it late in life. The other thing I wanted to say about getting hooked, which I think is really important for folks to know, especially if there are any people who are listening who really don't, aren't active, which is a lot of people, um, is that the brain that you have when you are regularly active is structurally and functionally different than a sedentary brain. And one of the things that's different about it is it enjoys movement more. It enjoys effort more. It enjoys exercise more. That the brain literally learns how to enjoy it, but it takes some time. And yeah. there's um, animal research on this as well as human research on this, how exercise changes the brain to make movement more pleasurable and also yeah. to make all of life more pleasurable. Um, but it takes at least six weeks. Yeah. So you can hate something when you start <laughs> and find no joy in it and think, I have a brain. I've heard from so many people, oh, I don't get an endorphin rush. Well, yeah, you won't the first few times because your brain is, is used to rewarding you for conserving energy. Right. And your brain has to remember how, has to remember how, so from our human inheritance, how to reward you for working hard. Yeah. And it learns that. And that's why you end up with people who crave exercise or they, they need it in order to, um, like they just know it makes them feel so much better. It, it's just, you have a different experience of it once you commit to it. Yeah. And that's part of what getting hooked is. Hey, it's Trini. I hope you're liking this episode of The Unmistakable Creative. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. Oh, I, I mean, I, I go through withdrawal if I'm not on the mountain or the in the water. Like surfers yeah. are not happy people when they have. You can tell, like friends of ours will you know, surf when I was living in California. Literally, would be like, "You're really grumpy this week. You haven't been in the water, have you?" Yeah, and, and exercise is so powerful in terms of it how it protects mood and boosts mood mm-hmm. that most people who exercise regularly will show withdrawal if they yeah. miss a workout, and you can induce depression and anxiety by um, forcing exercisers to not exercise, which as far as I'm concerned, like I don't, some people might be like, oh, then I shouldn't get started. (laughs) Like just think, no, (laughs) because it's so powerful. I I think of it like food. If you deprive me of food, I'm going to get really depressed and cranky and less able to engage with life too um, because food is nourishment and it's what supports my ability to to engage with life joyfully. Well, it's funny you describe that sort of experience of hating it because I remember when I started CrossFit, I would tell the instructors like, you know, man, I'm like, I hate every minute of being here, but I love how I feel when I get out. And that's why I keep coming back. I've heard that same sentiment from a lot of people. And also a lot of people who, um, who claim that if they pay attention to their direct experience, there are some moments in the actual workout Mm -hmm. that they enjoy. I mean, CrossFit's a great example because 
like, doesn't it feel good when people cheer you on? Yeah. Like, like there are moments in there. And one of the things that I think helps people who are struggling to commit is, you know, start looking for those moments too, because sometimes what we tend to remember is the the worst part, the part where you felt like you were going to throw up or where you, you know, you, <laughs> yeah. whatever, like, like you have, have to train yourself. This is like life in general. This is not just exercise. Uh-huh. You need to choose how you form memories of an experience that you want to commit to or a relationship you want to commit to. Like if you just spent time with a family member and that relationship matters to you and part of the conversation, there's a little bit of conflict, but part of the conversation felt really good and you were so glad to connect and grateful for that. Um, what part do you rehearse in your memory afterwards? What part do you tell your spouse? Do you tell them about the conflict because it feels good to like vent about it? Or do you tell them what you're grateful for? And so, you know, I, I, we need to do that with, with anything in our life that we yeah. want to commit more fully to. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to this section that you wrote about uh, the chapter on collective joy. And one of the things you said is effervescence helps explain why fitness, friendships, and sports teams feel like family, why social movements that include physical movement inspire greater solidarity and hope, and why individuals feel empowered when they join others to walk, run, or ride for a cure. And you know, one of my friends, he convinced me to join CrossFit because he said it helped with two things. He said that sleep and depression. And I, you know, part of the reason nice. I moved away from San Diego was because I felt that I didn't have much of a social circle there. But the one thing that actually it really did make a big difference was that I had this CrossFit experience to look forward to every day because the social need was being met. You know, that's what, one of the things I think I always said about surfing. It's like having a church, a gym, and a bar all in one activity because it meets your social, physical, and spiritual needs. Um, so what is it about this, this collective joy and how do people find experiences, uh, you know, other than CrossFit, you know, cause I mean, I, like, I don't think my dad would survive one day in a CrossFit gym. Yeah. Okay. Although you, you never know. There's a lot of, um, I don't, I don't work for CrossFit. I don't do CrossFit, but yeah. it, I talked to some CrossFit folks and there's a lot of interest in making it, uh, including, uh, adaptive training for people mm-hmm. with physical disabilities, including people who are older, um, so I think that, you know, there is a movement in the fitness world in general to try to be more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, so also like, if somebody's interested in something, I would never say to them, yeah, you're too old. You're too out of shape. You right. can't do that in a wheelchair. I, well, I just want to take that off the table and say, if there's something that seems really exciting to you, you know, one of the, the women, the woman in the book is not like, this is not meant to be an endorsement for CrossFit, but I do talk to a reverend who's also a CrossFit coach. And one of the things that she had written about on her blog was that, she thought she wasn't allowed to ask for a CrossFit membership as like a, a holiday gift because she didn't think she had the right body type for it. And mm. that, you know, because she wasn't thin and fit and looked like an athlete, but like she didn't even deserve the opportunity to train at a place where people were doing things that she thought looked really cool. Mm. And so I, I, I feel like anytime there's this voice in your head that says you can't do that because you're not the right size, you're not the right color, you're not the right age. Part of me just feels like I have to jump out on top of that and and try to give a counter message. Uh-huh. Um, but who know? I don't know what you know. Well, your so, your personal experience may vary. Well, so that raises an interesting question for for me, uh, coming from the Indian culture where recreation just wasn't part of the culture in my parents' generation. It's it's funny because now surfing is, is starting to take off in India. But the funny thing is, most people don't know this. If you want to literally surf the most uncrowded waves on the planet, they're in the most crowded country on earth because it just hasn't caught on with the culture. Um, simply because of the fact that recreation just has never really been part of it. Like I joke with my parents, I was like, our primary recreational activity as Indians is eating. 
Like, like that's literally mm-hmm. all we do when we get together. Um, you know, oh, but you dance too. This is true. We do dance. I'll give you that. Um, but mainly in movies and at weddings. Yeah, <laughs> so. at weddings. Well, yeah, I, I have a lot of students who are from India and they take yeah. trips back to India all the time and they, they come back with pictures from the, the weddings and the parties and I know there's dancing involved. Yeah. Oh, there's, trust me. There's, it, it's <laughs> like a, a, my sister just got married. So I, I, I'm intimately familiar with how much dancing is involved. <laughs> but the reason I brought that up is um, I would love more than anything in the world to spend a day, you know, skiing or snowboarding with my dad, but I would never forgive myself if he got hurt. And I think he's just at that point where it's not possible. So, you know, I wonder, you know, when you have this cultural aspect of it, and I know with young people in India, it's actually changing quite a bit now. Like they're much more health conscious because I think we've seen all our parents become diabetics. Um, So they're not eating the way they used to. There are CrossFit gyms everywhere. So there is this shift occurring. Uh, but you know, how do you, how do you navigate that? Like, I don't think I could convince my parents to do a physical activity as opposed to us just getting together and eating. Yes. And I, you know, also neither of my parents exercise. Um, I want to, by the way, get back to the original question you asked. I'm just flagging. I'm I do remember what it was and I will get back to it. But I think this is really important because I hear from a lot of people who want to encourage the people in their lives to be more active. And one thing that I think about is, so if you love surfing or you love snowboarding or you love, you know, whatever your activities that you love, what are some of the essential elements of joy in it that you could share with someone you love if you're pretty convinced that the version you're doing now is not sustainable or appropriate for, for their life experience? Mm. And so, you know, part of me thinks it's being in nature. Yeah. Um, part of me thinks it's who you become when you do that activity. I, one of the reasons we want to share experiences with people, and I see this all the time when um, people bring their family members to my dance classes, is it's not only that they want to share the experience with them, but they, they kind of have the sense that who they are while they're doing it is like a really good version of themselves. And they almost they, they want their kids or they want their spouse or they want their parents to see them as that version of themselves and interact with them from that place. So there might be a way to to think about spending time outdoors with your father or to think about who you are when you're surfing and how do you bring that to your interaction with your father Mm. or ask your father, like explain to your father how you feel when you're out there in the water. Like, is there anything in life that makes you feel that way? Uh Um, I, in having these conversations with my parents, um, I ended up realizing that there's there are, my mother has a relationship to music that I didn't really know about and that allowed us to have conversations about music that were really helpful to our relationship, even though she's never going to take my dance class. Mm-hmm. Um, she did come watch one of my dance classes. Yeah. Uh, my father, I learned that the reason that he um, has, has the hobbies he has, which don't seem like exercise, like um, watching trains, is he likes being outdoors. And now I understand that in a different way. And understand why he goes out on his own to take photos of trains. So I feel like sometimes it's a the desire to share an activity. If you don't think of it in terms of you're trying to control another person's health, like yeah. take the fear out of it and focus on the joys, there's a lot that you can experience. Um, and also encouraging people to start where they are mm-hmm. um, yeah. and to see what, what might be possible where they live and with the body that they have. Yeah. Well, it's funny because when, when you say that, I think about the things that I've told my dad, my dad's a photographer. I was like, why don't you come photograph one of my surf sessions? Mm-hmm. So that is one of those things that uh, he's been like, yeah, okay, let's do that. And he's like, I need to get some better lenses for that. But that to me seemed like the one way we would connect the dots. Yeah. Things. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. And of course, being out there, if he's doing that, that, you know, being outdoors in nature, walking around, that mm-hmm. also is um, part of green exercise, technically yeah. probably blue exercise. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I want to definitely do a deep dive into the green exercise. I want to uh, go Wait, into- Wait, we got back to collective joy. Collective joy, yeah, Shall and we? music. Uh, There's a lot. So go into, into collective joy because the music say, one so I have a lot of questions about. For people who are like, what's that collective joy thing? So it turns out that when human beings move with other human beings in synchrony, um, it shifts what's happening in our brains in a way that that makes us feel literally connected to the people we're moving with. And part of it is neurochemistry, some, some social bonding hormones like endorphins, possibly uh-huh. oxytocin. But people have this direct experience that, you know, if you're in a yoga class or you're, you're marching, you know, in a protest, or you are dancing with other people, whatever it is, that you, you literally feel connected 
and you sense yourself as part of something bigger than yourself. And as a result, people report liking the people they move with more, trusting them more, feeling more like they belong in a space where they move with other people. So less, less lonely or less stigma. Um, they also feel more hopeful in general about themselves and their problems and the world. So they, they report more optimism, more belief that like difficult problems can be solved. There's something really powerful about the psychological effect of moving with other people. And Collective Joy describes the kind of like the euphoria of it, but you don't have to get this enormous ecstatic, like the, the extreme version of like, you know, everyone's at a rave and they're jumping up and down <laughs> right. and maybe other substances involved. And you're like, this is collective joy. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that extreme. It could just be a sense of, of general well-being that comes from doing sun salutations in a room with other people. Uh-huh. Um, and that translates into to real, a real sense of social connection and bonding that, by the way, is not fake or phony. Because in my experience, you move with people yeah. and then you start having conversations I've seen again and again, actual social support emerge in movement communities when people are dealing with caregiving issues, grief, um, difficult life challenges. I, I see actual support emerge from people who started out as strangers in a way that's really important. And I, I, cannot, I cannot over um, value the support that comes from social interactions where you don't have a super clearly defined social role and obligation. So a lot of people will dismiss that like, oh, your CrossFit friends or your dance class friends. And, yeah. you know, they, they give you a card when you're sick or they ask you how you're doing because they know that you're caring for an aging parent. Like, what's that? That's not like having a husband or something mm. like that. But the truth is that so many of our social relationships that are close social relationships, they, they come with a cost as well as a reward. And there can be a lot of stress and there can be a lot of obligation um, and, and you often are perceived in a particular way, the way that, that, that those people think of you. And what I've seen in movement communities is that people often are seen in a way that feels like a relief. It's like a different version of themselves. There's less obligations. You can express a full range of emotions without worrying that other people don't want you to be angry or don't want you to be sad or you have to like keep a, a strong face. There's so much about these sort of casual communities of support that can be literally be like, um, like a life preserver when you're going through something difficult. Mm, wow. Well, let's do this. Let's get into uh, music. I, I really, really appreciated the the entire chapter on music, particularly because I it, it suddenly explained why I'm a much better snowboarder when I'm listening to music. Like I've noticed <laughs> if my headphones die, like my day just goes to shit on the mountain. And you said that the brain response to music uh, it enjoys with powerful adrenaline, dopamine, and endorphin rush, all of which energize effort and alleviate pain. For this reason, musicologists describe music as ergogenic or work-enhancing. Throughout history, across cultures, music has been used to make labor less difficult and more rewarding. The endorphins released by music not only make tasks easier, but also can bond a group that works together. So, you know, we just talked about the bonding piece. But I've noticed when I'm listening to music on the mountain, um, I ride a lot faster my instincts are a thousand times sharper. Uh, and I just feel like I'm in some sort of rhythm. Like I, I really find that like I have a snowboarding playlist that I play every single time I go to the mountain. Why is that? What the hell yeah. is going on there? Yeah. I mean, part of it is what you just read quickly. So the brain, so music that it, it's not all music. So if you absolutely hate what you're listening to, it's probably not going to have the effect that we're talking about. But no. as soon as music has a decent beat and you, you basically like it, <laughs> It, to any degree, it has some energy to it. Maybe you enjoy the lyrics or remind you of your youth. Um, it invites 
the brain to start preparing for movement, it facilitates movement. There, you know, people who study musicology and, and neuroscience have a lot of theories for why this is the case. But basically, when you're listening to music you like, it helps the brain move and do everything that it needs to do to support your effort and your movement. I mean, it literally, even if you aren't moving and you're listening to music you enjoy, the entire motor system of the brain becomes active. Every system of the brain that helps you plan movement, regulate movement, um, sense movement and movement feedback, they all become active. They're just so ready to move because music is essentially like the way that, that humans have evolved. Music is a soundtrack to support movement. That's what music has always been used for. And that's how the brain experiences music. And so, you know, one of the things that I thought was funny is I found a review paper in a sports medicine journal that, that literally called music a legal performance enhancing drug. And there's a lot of debate about whether athletes should be able to listen to music, not only while they're competing, but what's happening when they're, before they compete. And, you know, you see like Olympic athletes listening to music before they go down the slope or, you know, swim in a, a, a meet. Um, there is very clear evidence that that will improve their performance, that they will go faster, they can go further, they can control their movements better. Um, and you experience it as just you know being better at something that you already can do and love. Yeah. I got to witness this in a class um, for people with Parkinson's disease, and it was a really dramatic um, thing to witness. It was a dance class for people with Parkinson's disease, and I got there really early, uh, just sort of watch people show up. And I saw people who came into the dance space using walkers and canes who were just struggling so hard to get in the room. And this is a class that is based on music that has live music that before we move, we sang. And if you couldn't sing verbally, you could hum and just make, make sounds that the music was used as an invitation to move. And then we started dancing and walking around the space. And I watched people people, it's as if they were inhabiting different bodies because the music was such a powerful invitation to move that people who were shuffling were now gliding across the floor. So I think that you sort of, you can experience it as just a boost your workout, or you can experience as an athlete, that music will literally make things physically possible that are not possible. Um, like the runner I wrote about who broke a world record by tricking the uh, event organizers into playing um, the song he trained to over the loudspeakers. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's, that's gutsy, but it worked. Yeah. Um, so you can experience that way, or you can experience it in the much more, uh, you know, I think profound way of when people start to have neurological disorders that impair movement. Music is one of the only things that seems to um, be able to, you know, if, it's not going to completely reverse the process, but uh. give people moments of being able to move and connect and experience their bodies in a different way that has real therapeutic value. Mm, wow. So, you know, I think the interesting thing is you talked about the next chapter, uh, you know, being obstacles, right? And you said so much of the language we use to describe courage relies on metaphors of the body. We overcome obstacles, break through barriers and walk through fire. We carry burdens, reach out for help and lift one another up. This is how we as humans talk about bravery and resilience. And when I read that, I couldn't help but thinking that, well, that explains why my writing journey and my surfing journey were parallel almost to the day. 
like I, I said that it was strange, but I never thought surfing would actually have a profound and positive impact on my career, even though it seemed like this beach bum thing that I was doing, you know, when I had no job after grad school, like my parents literally were worried that I was never going to look for a job because I was spending so much time in the water. Uh, but why is that? Why does movement enable us to deal with um, these difficult things in our lives? Like, why is it that movement has such an impact on obstacles? Yeah. So this is the chapter I think that really most fully explores movement as a metaphor. So, um, and there are a couple of, of reasons why movement allows us to experience these core human traits of things like resilience um, and courage and, and strength um, and hope because in part because our brains are wired to listen to feedback from our muscles and from our, our hearts and from our lungs that, that tell the brain sort of who you are in this moment. So if you look at neurological case studies of people who can no longer sense their body moving through space, what they will tell you is that they have no idea who they are. They feel like a ghost, that, that literally the sense of self is built through proprioceptive feedback from your muscles and your joints and your heart and your lungs. That's how we know who we are. And one of the side effects of that is that when you move in ways that have inherent qualities to them, like you lift something heavy, you will actually sense your own strength. When you brace your core for stability, you will literally sense that you are centered. When you move your body with grace and, and expressivity, you will experience yourself as graceful and beautiful. And your brain doesn't think my biceps are strong or my core muscles are active. Your brain thinks I am strong. Your brain thinks I've got this. I'm grounded. I'm rooted. I'm in control. Your brain thinks I'm beautiful. I'm graceful. And um, the brain just, it just turns these direct physical sensations into a sense of self that then becomes, that operates like a metaphor. It's a story that you can tell yourself so that, you know, you go to the gym. One of the stories I write about in the book was a woman who literally chose not to take her own life after she deadlifted more weight than she had ever been able to lift before, which I think is, it's such, and what a strange exercise that it would have literally been something called a deadlift. And she deadlifted a personal best and she had a physical sensation of her own strength and in that moment, she said, I want to live. That there's something really powerful that when you sense your own courage or strength or resilience or beauty. Um, so that's part of it. And the other part of it, in, the, in this chapter, I write a lot about how movement allows us to experience interdependence in a different way that is really important for overcoming um, difficult life challenges. So you know, in some of my previous work, I've written a lot about trauma and stress and, and loss and mental health challenges. And one of the themes in all of my work is this should never be a do-it-yourself project. We need to reach out to others. All of us need support. All of us are stronger together, whatever it is you're going through. And part of the metaphor of movement is so many people experience that through movement in a way that is different than they've ever experienced before. So it might be the case that you know, you're, you're running a Tough Mudder obstacle course and you get to an obstacle where in order to get up over it, you need people to literally lift you up and pull you over. And before you run on to the next obstacle, you wait at the top, you look down for who needs some help and you extend your hand and you lift them up and over. And you get to experience the full cycle of human interdependence through your body. That in a race, you can feel like in a moment when you're running a 5K or a half marathon, 
and there's a moment where you're demoralized and your legs don't want to go any further. And somebody from the sideline cheers you on and says, you can do this. You've got this. And it motivates you. And then you finish the race and you run back and you do that for somebody else. These are the stories that people were telling me. And so I think that that's the other part of it. Part of it is how it feels in your body to do difficult things and what that teaches you about yourself. And part of it is getting to have a lived concrete experience that um, how we get through difficult things is by allowing ourselves to receive support from others and then also giving back and using our experience to help others in turn. Mm, Wow. One of my favorite ways to spread the message of our mission here at The Unmistakable Creative is through speaking. In the last two years, I've delivered keynotes and workshops to professional associations, large companies like Citibank and Meredith Corp, and even small ones on how creativity can lead to better working environments, fuel innovation, and increase the bottom line. So if you think I'd be a fit for your upcoming event and want to learn more, visit speaking.unmistakablecreative.com and get in touch. Again, that's speaking.unmistakablecreative.com. So let's talk about the green exercise and this whole idea of spending time in nature, because I think that, you know, there are two things that you said here that really struck me. You said that green exercise appears to do something similar to the brain, but without the need for dedicated mind training. And when you said similar, you're referring to meditation. And then the other thing you said is that when you're absorbed in your natural surroundings, the brain shifts into a state called soft fascination. It's a state of heightened present moment awareness. Now, as I read that, I thought, okay, yeah, this is why CrossFit is my necessary evil and snowboarding is the thing I look forward to. Um, it's a very, very different experience. Like I, and you know, I wonder why that is like, why is it that nature has this impact on us? I know it's so interesting, right? So I think the theme in every chapter in the book, what I'm trying to write about is that human, the human brain, how we survived as human beings is the human brain has these adaptations that allow us to experience joy triggered by different things. So we can experience joy through connecting with others. We can experience joy through persisting through difficulties. And human beings have survived in part because we can experience positive emotions in the natural world. And there's this whole theory of biophilia that the human brain really is drawn to nature um, because in order to survive, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago through pretty relatively recent history, Humans needed to experience hope in nature so they would continue to seek out food sources. We needed to feel a sense of awe in nature, both so that you know we could persist in whether we needed to explore new areas, but also how awe can give you a sense of, of almost like vigilance, like openness, a sense of the, the profundity of your own life and the need to take caution. There are all these emotions that we feel in nature that support our ability to navigate living in a natural environment hope, wonder, curiosity, awe, self-transcendence. And so that's the theory is that our brain knows how to do that because the human beings who felt those things in nature survived. And so when people are active outdoors, the idea is that the brain is just like, oh, we're in nature. Let's feel some of those things, hope, awe, self-transcendence, the unity sensation. Um, And that's an instinct that most human brains will, will find pleasurable and, and often uh, sort of a relief from what the, the mind will do in other settings, which is often worry or ruminate or just, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the, the mind that is not helpful. And um, so you mentioned there's some research that exercising outdoors um, shifts you into a state of open awareness that looks a lot like what master meditators, what happens in their brains when you ask them to shift into a state of deep meditation. 
And I'm a big fan of meditation. I have taught and researched and you know, published studies on the benefits of meditation. So I'm not saying skip meditation, there's no value to it, just go hike outdoors. But one of the things that I came across in the research on green exercise is how especially useful it was for people who have minds that just are not their friend. Um, <laughs> depression, anxiety, grief, PTSD, yeah. that, and I've also seen um, people with these conditions experience really heightened suffering when they first attempt to meditate because you're basically saying, okay, mind, give me what you've got. Mm. And meditation in theory teaches you how to deal with that. But sometimes it's just enormously triggering to be with your own mind and be trying to, to navigate all of the, all of those thoughts and intrusive memories and, and emotions. Whereas yeah. being in nature for many people who believe there's no way to control the contents of their mind and are almost being tortured by their own thinking they will experience profound, almost immediate relief through outdoor exercise. I talked to so many people for whom this was true. Yeah, I, I, I'm one of them. I mean, it, it, you know, people always ask, how did you get started with surfing? We talked about that moment of being hooked. I had really bad IBS for almost 10 years. And I remember the first day I caught a wave, I thought to myself, wow, I think I just found the cure. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel that way about music. I mean, the other thing that I want to highlight about this is there might be people listening who are like, that's not me. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not actually a green exerciser. I, I, I like nature. I like, you know, it's, I appreciate the beauty of it, but the thing that provides the immediate relief to me, the immediate hope, the immediate transcendence, that's music. And I think that probably many, for many of us, there is like a temperamental thing where of all of these human capacities for joy, there are a few that are really in us. And part of the joy of movement is figuring out what it is for you. And if you have, if you've had like a failure experience, like everyone told you there's nothing more blissful than hiking in nature and you hated it. Yeah, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy movement. Maybe yeah. it means you know, there's something else for you. Oh, trust me. I, living in Boulder, my friends constantly invite me hiking. And I'm like, yeah, hiking is for white people. Haven't you seen the Patagonia ads? Have you ever seen a brown person in a Patagonia commercial? No. Although I will say there's a wonderful group called Unlikely Hikers uh -huh. that was specifically created for people who felt like they didn't see themselves in <laughs> media portrayals of hiking, but yeah. still found incredible joy through green exercise. So yeah, I mean, being yeah. a snowboarder, like I appreciate nature. I was just like, I'm not interested in hiking. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So there's one other thing I, I wanted to ask you about uh, related to this idea of green exercise, which really struck me. You said spending time, not just indoors, but also on social media pushes us towards social cognition and often rumination without yeah. regular time spent outdoors. We can lose touch with the default state of open awareness by reconnecting with nature, we refamiliarize ourselves with this other aspect of what it means to be human. So I, I wanna ask you about this with, with um, some additional context. I noticed there were two things that really fundamentally changed my experience of nature. So, you know, I would have this amazing surf session. I would come out with that sort of Zen-like flow high that you get from surfing, same thing with snowboarding. But if I checked Facebook immediately after I uploaded pictures during a session, it would completely undo everything that just happened. Yes. Okay, so I'm so glad you're asking about this because every book I write, I basically sneak in something that is my own personal theory and I disclose it as such. But after <laughs> like, you know, I mean, when you spend years digging into the research, often you yeah. will have an insight that you don't really see represented by the, the people who are pushing the science forward yet. So in this book, one of the ideas that I, I feel like that this may be something that is, is not yet recognized, but may be true about how the human mind works. So if you talk to most neuroscientists, they will tell you there is a default state of the brain that it goes to whenever you're not focused on something else. And this is a default state that we've been able to observe by putting people in brain scanners and having them do nothing 
and their mind wanders and we watch where it goes. And from that research, uh, especially over the last decade, um, you know, you can characterize what the human brain does by default. And it is basically thinking about yourself and time travel, ruminating over the past, imagining the future. It often has a negative bias. So it may, it may trend more towards worry than towards idealistic fantasy. Um, it often trends towards thinking about what other people think about you and judging other people. That's that social cognition part. And a lot of people find the default state profoundly unpleasant um, because of this. So if, and yet I also, you know, I've been studying meditation for decades and researching it. And when you talk to a lot of people who have come out of the meditation traditions, they will tell you the default state of the human mind is peace and a sense of connection to all things, uh, less of a, a small self, that sort of self that's defined by your past and your relationships with others and stories about yourself that is defined by like pure being. And I was, you know, how to reconcile that with the neuroscience that says, nope, the default state of the human mind is like this inner chatter that leads to suffering. And when I started um, researching what happens to the human brain when you're in nature, it just looks so much like what these meditation um, experts tell you is the default state of the human mind, the sense of peace, of hope, less of a sense of small self and more a sense of like big self that is connected to life and to others, not, not so much a separate self. And so I started to think um, and look at some of the research on that anthropologists and cognitive psychologists have come up with looking at what the human mind is adapted for and the strengths that the human mind has. And I, I just, I came up with this idea that, that maybe we do have two different default states. One that's triggered by being in an fMRI machine with nothing to do. And you know, you're in technology, you're not exposed to the outdoors. Maybe there's a natural default state that is really about what the mind is when you're out in a natural environment that you know, cognitive psychologists talk about foraging cognition and meditation teachers talk about open awareness. And um, I think it's possible that we do have a, the brain has a capacity to drop into a state that feels at peace and at one. But if you're on your phone, you're on social media, you're in an environment where you are not seeing blue sky or green plants or one of the biggest cues that makes people feel this positive state in nature is biodiversity. So you're not seeing insects and hearing bird calls or whatever the biodiversity is. Um, you default to the default state of social cognition and often suffering. And when you're in nature and you're in a beautiful setting and when you're moving your body, which supports the uh, default state of, of open awareness, that that is more likely to be what your brain does naturally. This is my theory. So now, now the world can go find out if that's right. Yeah, Neuroscientist, well, it's on you. Well, you, you have another book to write now. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's funny because to listen to you explain all this together, it, my experience of snowboarding makes all the sense in the world. Like it kind of combines everything that you and I have talked about over the last hour. Yes, yes. And you found your thing and you know that it's important for your mental health. And you talked about how it supports your ability to do meaningful work. And maybe now it's going to be a way to connect with your family too. And uh, I think like that. So, you know, near the beginning of this conversation, we talked about the word movement versus exercise and the allergic reactions that people often have to exercise. Yeah. And I will say one of the things that I've come up against in now, so now I've been promoting this book for about a month. And one of the things that I am realizing in a very deep way is that our culture is convinced 
the ideal relationship to exercise is to do the least amount possible, almost to, to extricate it from the things that make it meaningful and enjoyable because exercise is medicine. And so you're looking for the smallest and most convenient dose. And, and people want me to say things like, all you have to do is a minute and you're done. Or you don't have to, I can't tell you how many times people have said, I'm so glad that in your book, I feel like now I don't have to run a marathon. And I always say, of course, you don't have to run a marathon, but do you know how many people for whom running a marathon is like a life-changing experience? And so the thing that I'm realizing now is I really want to encourage people to do like what you have done with snowboarding and I have done with dancing and dancing in community is that you can go all in on this. You don't have to look for the most convenient, smallest dose that's going to prevent a heart attack or, you know, enhance your brain function that if you have the time and the interest or you are suffering, which is a really good time to think about doing this because of a life transition or depression or grief or whatever reason, um, go all in, think big joy, think meaning, think community, think commitment. Um, that this is not about just doing two minutes so that you can feel better. It could go much beyond that. Mm. Wow. So I have two final questions for you. One came from my cousin and I'm going to rephrase it just so it makes more sense. Um, what is the role that willpower plays in all of this? But I know it's some of the content from your previous book, but you know, I mean, what is it that explains the day? Like my, my roommate keeps teasing me. He's like, so when are you actually going back to the CrossFit gym? And I haven't paid the $200 yet because we just moved to Boulder. And all of last week I was on the mountain every day. So pretty much I know if I can snowboard, I'm not going to CrossFit. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there are also days when I'm like, oh, I should probably go, but I'm not going to. What is going on there? So, well, first of all, I define willpower as the ability to make decisions that are consistent with your highest goals and values even when some part of you does not want to or want something else because you're tired, because you're stressed, because you're distracted, because you're tempted for whatever reason. So part of me, you know, when I think about what willpower has to do with movement, part of it is to recognize that because, because human beings have a, a brain that both wants to conserve energy and will reward you for exerting yourself, it's a really strange paradox if you aren't yet moving, your brain will probably try to convince you not to do it. Mm. And as soon as you're doing it, your brain will start to reward you for doing it with endorphins and endocannabinoids and, and all of that and adrenaline. So you have to understand that. And it's very similar to lots of willpower challenges that when you are contemplating it, often the, the state that you're in is going to make it more difficult to fully understand the benefits you will get if you make the choice that is consistent with your highest goals and values. And so at a very practical level, this means you should not expect when your alarm goes off to crave getting out of bed and putting on your sneakers and going for a walk. You should expect that a couple minutes into it, you're going to be so glad you did. And you have to learn to trust that process and be familiar with it. Even someone like me, I love movement. I'm like in love with what it's done for me and my life. And I don't want to do it when I wake up in the morning. Mm. That paradox is real. And I, I just don't let that be the decider. Yeah. So um, that's part of what I would say with willpower. And the other thing I should say is, by the way, if you're interested in, in supporting decisions in other aspects of your life, exercise is one of the few things that seems to change the brain and the nervous system in a way that supports the biological aspect of willpower. That you know, it gives you greater heart rate v- variability by like by default, that becomes a new sort of 
um, state of your nervous system. Um, it strengthens the systems of the brain that allow for self-regulation and planning and all of that. So you can also think of exercise as something you do to support all of your other willpower goals. Amazing. Well, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I don't know. Could you, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> what do you mean? Okay. Do you give me a definition first? Yeah, I'll give you a react. definition. So for the purposes of writing a book, I had to define, you know, especially when the book is titled Unmistakable, um, I defined it as something that nobody else could do but you in the way that you do. Oh, love that. Yes. Um, I, so I believe to, so I do a lot of mentoring and coaching and I believe that most human beings, there will be something that they take joy in that is very specific to who they are. And there's also a form of suffering that they are comfortable and brave around that other people might run from. You know, like, so I have, for example, I work with people who spend a lot of time in prisons with people who have enormous lifetimes of suffering and are, are coming to that situation with lifetimes of, you know, being victims of violence and perpetrating violence. And they just, for whatever reason, they are at ease in those situations in a way that other people would panic or experience judgment and fear and, and all of that. Um, I'm very comfortable with loss for whatever reason. That's a form of suffering that does not put me into panic. And so I can be at ease around people who are experiencing grief in a way that sometimes other people enter this kind of empathic distress or panic mode. So I think when, when I'm encouraging people to think about their life path, I'm always asking them to think about those two things. What is the thing that you love? And maybe it's so specific. Like if you were to ask me, what's the earliest thing you love that you still love? I might say um, movies that are about underdogs winning dance contests. And like nothing makes me happier, but you know what? If I pay attention to that, yeah. that can get, that could lead you to a direct path to the fact that every day of my life, my greatest joy is teaching dance classes to people who are not professional dancers and giving them the experience of the joy of moving to music. And then also to pay attention to what's the suffering that you don't judge? What's the suffering that does not send you into a panic either because it's too close to home or you have no empathy for it? Um, and I... I think that if you can learn what those are, you will find a way to serve the world that is unmistakable. Hmm. Amazing. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the new book, and everything else that you're up to? Uh, I'm at kellymcdonagall.com. And you can also, if you just do an internet search for the joy of movement, you will find me and hmm. all of uh, my social media channels. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.